0: Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host Scott Greer and today we're going to have another incredible and informative episode for you guys. I know you guys always expect that but we're definitely going to have that one today. And today we're going to have a broad topic that I'm going to leave a lot of themes and topics into with uh and it's gonna be inspired by a hit song that we've all heard. It's the this is you know we've had a lot of podcasts on hit songs lately, lots of music themed uh highly respected. But this last week there was a huge hit on conservative Twitter and then it expanded beyond conservative Twitter and it was another country song similar to Jason Aldean's well not very similar in or not dis not similar in sound but similar in that it was a country song that connected with conservatives and this song was by a new artist or an rather relatively unknown artist actually was pretty much unknown before this this is his first big hit our first time that even people have really heard of him and it's by oliver anthony and it's rich men north of richmond i'm sure most of our listeners have listened to the song maybe they've even listened to it on repeat because it has been everywhere and like a lot of other hits, a musical hits on conservative Twitter or among conservatives, it hit the top of the charts on iTunes as in its release, and it has gone mega viral, and it is now another viral moment in our public culture. So there's a lot to talk about here because, then a little bit of debates over what's the song meaning, what uh, whether this is a very important moment whether this song signals something much deeper going on in American culture and society and we will discuss that but I really want to this song I think the biggest importance to take away from it is the development of a conservative consumer demographic CCD for those who grow Catholic CCD means something else it's their little uh uh Sunday school Catholic education catechism education we had before we were confirmed but the CCD means something different here and this is it is a sign because this first even though I think unlike a lot of other songs that hit uh, become a hit among conservatives like the numerous let's go Brandon raps uh, Forgiato blow that stuff is only really appealing to conservatives this has a lot of crossover appeal, probably even more than Try That in a Small Town. Even though Try That in a Small Town is a pop country song, everyone who listens to country radio is going to like it, but I think a lot of liberals are just not going to like even if their country fans are just not going to like Try That in a Small Town due to the really overt political theme and message that they think is implicitly racist or in their minds. It's explicitly racist, but you know how they think they're a little bit crazy with this, except for a few, except for like two lines, there's like one line about uh, Jeffrey Epstein Island, you know, worrying about minors on an Island. And then there's another complaining about fat people on, on welfare roll and them getting government money. Besides those two lines, it's a rather, it, it's a traditional country song And it's themes You know, there's been country songs throughout time Complaining about the hard times The hard times of the working man How, you know, the government's not looking out for them It's a very traditional country themes. You know uh, Take This Job and Shove It by Johnny Paycheck Would be one example of something like that Of a man complaining about his work And what's going on uh, in his life And there's always been uh, you know, fighting side of me, you know, there's always been these types of songs. So it's not uh, atypical for the genre. I think the it incorporates a little bit more of the current zeitgeist of what conservatives care about, you know, thinking that politicians are engaged in an international pedophile ring and the complaints about people on welfare. But I think overall, that's just the updating of what is this traditional country song. It's just fitting with the times. So it's not as political as Aldine's song. It's in also some ways, or in actually a lot of ways, safer than Aldine's song. Aldine's song is more suitable for country radio. You know, it's pop country. This is traditional country, which is not really what's played on country radio. It has, you know, it's not as big as in the mainstream. But at the same time, the Aldine song is more uncomfortable for people are more hard hitting. I think it's more I think it may resonate a little bit more with the message of the song because it captures a lot of the frustration with crime with the with the lowering of law and order with, you know, black lives matter and some of the racial problems that we're having in this country and it touches on all that. And it's you know, really what appeals to a lot of Republican voters, but maybe it's even what the conservative commentators and a lot of other people outside of conservative circles are more uncomfortable with talking about because it's like, well, we, we don't really want to admit this is what we really care about for some people. The race and identity stuff really makes them uncomfortable. While the o- Oliver Anthony song is more in what the image of what they want to present themselves is that, oh, we're, you know, we're not racist. We're about the entire working class. We're about the forgotten man and it's it's an economic problem, not an identity or cultural or racial problem. That's really what's happening. I don't I don't think this guy had any that this type of deep of meaning was attached to the song. I think the guy just wrote a song what he felt like and his frustrations. And I think it's that people are running with the, their own interpretations of it. But that's what it comes across as. It comes across more of what conservatives want to think that they care about or they imagine that they they themselves are and what they fundamentally care about and what's motivating the current right rather than al song which is probably closer to what the general base cares about what the general base thinks about how they want they view the state of the country right now but it's a much more controversial because there's the racist angle that they can play on here. I know some of the left is claiming that the, this song is racist because of the line about welfare. But everyone is laughing about that and saying like, oh, that's, that's preposterous that you would claim that. And this song is otherwise doesn't have a really direct political message outside of those two lines. And the song did become a hit and it's become as, you know, returning to the theme of the conservative consumer demographic, it does show the power of the conservative consumer demographic because, you know, this is, I don't know, there's been several songs that have hit the top of the iTunes chart, which I was talking with a friend about this, is that the iTunes chart seems to be, because it's based on download iTunes downloads, and that seems to be more of an older crowd that's doing it. Rather than a younger crowd, because the young crowd is either using Apple Music or Spotify to streaming. They're not really downloading individual songs. So the ones who are downloading individual songs are likely to be older, likely to be more conservative. <clears throat> and if you look at all the hit songs, you know, there's been several novelty songs that have hit the top of the iTunes charts from, the, from Trump's uh, J6 choir song. The the uh, several songs about, you know, fuck Joe Biden or then let's go Brandon or anti-vax songs or, you know, the many Forgiato blow blow songs about fuck Bud Light or whatever. Those have all hit. And it's generally been novelty songs that have done that. You know, they're not really good, very on a cultural level. I don't think anyone would call them high quality. It's more of just like, oh, this appeals to my political taste. I want to listen to this novelty song. But now we're seeing legitimate country songs emerge that I think the average person who's not political would sit and enjoy and actually have the potential to become bona fide radio hits. And we've already seen that with Try That in a Small Town, which became not just the number one country song, regardless of Apple, uh, iTunes, but it became the number one country song on the billboards and the number one song, period, on the billboard charts. You know, so this was not just an internet phenomenon. It carried on past the internet to reach the ordinary country music listener. And it was first driven by that conservative consumer demographic that took to the song. They saw the video. They're like, I agree with this. You know, there's controversy over the song. You know, CMT pulled the music video. I think MTV later pulled the music video because of the racist content. And then, but they had had a firm audience that was buying, the, you know, was buying the song on iTunes, and that was demanding that radio stations play that, play it, and then became a hit. And now we're seeing that development with this song as well, because if you look at the iTunes charts, it looks like a conservative dream, because you know, four or five of the top 10 tracks are Oliver Anthony songs. Uh, Try That Small Town, I think is like number three, uh, or four, it's in the top five. And then it's like Taylor Swift, uh, the new Luke Combs song, Fast Car, which is also benefiting from support from conservative consumer demographic over backlash against it from the left because, you know, it's uh, covering a black woman's song. Uh, I think she, a gay black woman song, nonetheless. And they, you know, the left is like saying a white guy can't cover the song, but then conservatives are like, we're going to support this despite the cancellation attempts. And that's in the top 10 too. And so it looks like, you know, could you know, if you looked at the top ten tracks on iTunes, it looked like a you know conservative dreams of of what they want the, pop, the most popular music to be in America right now. And another thing driving the iTunes thing is that people will buy the song just to support artists that they that agree with them or are making a statement. It's a way to show support for them. But it's showing it's demonstrating that that is a powerful or it's a consumer demographic that marketers and entertainment industry and corporations have to pay attention to because throughout this is probably the biggest theme for conservative politics this year outside of the Trump indictment and the firing of Tucker Carlson, which the firing of Tucker Carlson almost undermines the notion of the conservative consumer demographic. But there's still some um, it's still it doesn't fully uh, uh, discount it. But what we've seen throughout this year, I think the biggest news story for conservatives is the Bud Light boycott. And this is not me just being facetious or being critical of it. It really is the biggest news story, even more so than Trump's indictments, because, you know, this started off in the beginning of April and it's still a top news item for conservatives. Like Fox News still has, if you go to foxnews.com or you watch Fox News, they will still be talking about Bud Light's declining profits and how people, how wokeness has killed the company. And this is (laughs) several months later, and it's still a top conservative item. And it's very much conservatives feeling like they finally won something. But that's also demonstrating the conservative consumer demographics sway is that this initially became a boycott is that there was this highlighting how they made a case of beer with Dylan Mulvaney's face on it. And there was outrage. And then eventually that carried on to ordinary people are the core demographic for Bud Light, which is the bros, and the bros have decided that now Bud Light is the gay beer, and they don't want to buy it anymore due to that conservative outrage, due to the conservative consumer demographic getting very upset about this. And then this applied to Target. Um, really, Target's only been the only other one that's had a semi-successful boycott because you know there was a, a plunge in that stock. Uh, they've tried with some other companies, but it's haven't quite taken off like it has for Bud Light or even Target. But it's not just punishing companies, it's also showing support for ventures that they like. Because Sound of Freedom it, you know, is the first time that a movie has been able to demonstrate its massive support among the conservative consumer demographic, and that's made it a big hit. You know, It's a low-budget, independent film, And it's gotten, I think, over 100 million in the box office. You know, it's become a it's become a hit, a genuine hit. And that was all due to the conservative consumer demographic getting behind it and, you know, buying multiple tickets. And, you know, a big reason why it became so successful is the company figured out a way that it wasn't just based on, you know, buying tickets for the movie and going seeing it is that people would just buy in bulk. Or, you know, even if the tickets, you know, no one was using those tickets, they were buying a bulk to show support for the movie, you know, to help the movie out and to create that message that this is a big hit, which it, you know, a lot of people did see it. It's not saying that, you know, it's totally artificial, but people were willing to chip in extra to ensure that it became a genuine hit, uh, did, that it hit hundred million in the box office. And so it, it's something that's showing that there is a powerful force within this consumer, consumer demographic that's willing to support ventures, whether it's music or uh, movies. And even there, there's been the success of these anti-woke uh, Bud Light alternatives, which I think in some ways is more of a grifter operation than probably the movie and the mus- music. But it also shows that this is a a profitable market to tap in. Cause every, you know, there's the ultra right beer that guy has been making has made millions off that beer. Um, <laughs> even though it's like over, you know, it's well, it's overpriced. I think it's like $19 for a six pack or some sort, but people are buying it anyway, just to send a message. So this is a market to tap into. And this is a huge benefit for the Oliver Anthony song, even though, as I said, you know, I, It's not just conservatives who would like this song. And I think if the conservative consumer demographic hadn't rallied around the song as their anthem, I think it would be, you know, NPR would be loving the song. Because this is definitely country music that NPR would highlight the liberal audience, except for the few lines of the song that are like, oh, that's offensive. You know, the, the Epstein Island and the welfare criticism. Otherwise, they would love that song. And they've always promoted this type of stuff with like Tyler Childers, uh, who's now gone full uh, lib. He's probably already lib, but he did a a pro gay song (laughs) recently. And that's, you know, and that's really what it's. In some ways, this is a response more to Tyler Childers and to the leftism of traditional country and just saying, like, hey, there's now a conservative guy who is making this type of music and it's not just libtards what's going on earlier is that Oliver Anthony and Al Dean represent this actually creating music that can stand on its own. That it's not just the novelty song. That these could be genuine hits and people would say this is a really good song. I really enjoy this without the political content. Uh, whether, you know, Al Dean, a lot of people don't like the pop country sound. But that is what people really like. That's the type of music people really like on pop country. And as I said about the Oliver Anthony song is change a few lyrics and NPR is the one soy jacking over this rather than conservatives. And that's that's the nature is that this is like expanding beyond the novelty tracks and the rap song, the terrible rap songs. And it's actually creating music that people would actually on its own say is good and would enjoy regardless of the political content. So it is a development of conservative culture. I think of the way that people want it to be developed, that it's it's cultural creations that can stand on their own. They may have a political message or they may have <coughs> that, but I think on their own, people would say that they enjoy. Maybe you could say that about Sound of Freedom. I Some people are criticizing, I guess um, I can't really see what the critics, uh, you know, I don't think critics were saying it was a terrible movie. And most people said it, said it was like an okay movie. Um, I can't, you know, without the um, human trafficking element or the, you know, Appeal to a certain political demographic. It's unclear whether people would actually say it's a good movie. But it's like probably better than any type of other movie conservatives have made in the past. So the level of creation and quality is increasing among this, among conservative media products, our cultural products that they want to deliver. And that it does, and dude, if it has a high, a decent amount of quality, it does have that crossover appeal. It's able to reach people beyond uh, the conservative consumer demographic. Now we'll go into what conservatives have been thinking about this song, because I think even more than the Al Dean song, that they have acted like this is a revelation, like this is a revolutionary moment in music, that this has come out, and people are uh, really reading a lot into it, probably more than they should be reading into it, I think I said like a point is like what's my views on the song. I think the song is okay. You know, it's all right. I mean I'm not like traditional country music. It's like okay when it comes on. I'm not that it's not really what I want to listen to in my free time, but it's okay. It's not like I'm going to be it's not like rap music or uh, soul and R&B or jazz, you know, it's not going to make me upset that I that it's uh, playing, but you know, it's not really what I'm in, uh, really into, but it's a fine song. I think it. I've talked to people really big into country music, and they said that it's on its quality its own. They like it. I like. I talked to a friend who felt the lyrics were cringe and said, but he really enjoyed the music. Uh, so that's a that's a state of its quality. But you know, the way the right has responded to it is a little. Unreal, (laughs) a little unreal, because there's a you know the rallying around the song that is like even more so than try that in a small town, probably equivalent to Sound of Freedom, because with if you criticize Sound of Freedom, you were a pedophile. Um, They all been they automatically said that like any criticism of this movie makes you a pedophile. With uh, this, if you criticize the song. Uh, they're also calling you a pedophile because this this does you know as I've said before, you know the left has systemic racism, the right has systemic pedophilia, and that the fact the left calls everyone racist or bigots who they disagree with, now the right uh, is inclined to call everyone a pedophile that they disagree with, which. It's what it is. It's a little humorous. I don't know if it's the best argument, but that's what they're rolling with. But it's not so much pedophile. It's that you're a bug man, that you really don't, that you're on the opposite end, that you're actually a spiritual libtard if you're not obsessed with this song, if you don't think this is the best song ever, and that you have to enjoy this song. Which, you know, I I don't think people need to be forced to do that. And they didn't do this with Al Dean, probably because Al Dean's themes are not the themes that they want to drive home and what they're about. Because really, what as I you know was saying a bit earlier, but to expand on this, is that this is really what conservatives want to see themselves as. They really want to see themselves as downtrodden, working class, ruralites, good old boys who are being exploited by the rich men and they're on the last dollar. And this is what the conservative coalition is. It's now made up of Poor, hard Scrabble, working class, the multiracial working class. Even though this guy is not saying anything about multiracial working class, but the people who are really getting into the song uh, really appreciate that idea. And it really, you know, furthers along with that. It's like when people were looking for reasons to explain Trump, and there was this guy, Chris Arnade, who was not a conservative. He was, I think, you know, he's like a mainstream reporter or something, or photographer, and he went around. You know these really poor places in America to show Trump's America, and his point was to say that economic anxiety was the fundamental under our motive of conserv- uh, of the Trump moment, and people really gravitated towards that idea because there's a less icky aspect about it. It's it's far more comfortable. It's much more reassuring that now conservatives are on the working man side, and it's gives and it gives rise to this like pseudo Marxism that's becoming increasingly popular on the right, or at least among right wing intellectuals. And it you know, even for people who are not espousing pseudo Marxism and they're still stuck on the same libertarian economics before, they really want to imagine that they are the ones on the side of the working class, of the working man. And the working class becomes for conservatives the downtrodden people that they want to identify with in the same way that the left does with urban blacks, with blacks, is that they're like, look, we may be wealthy, but we have the same political opinions as the blacks. And we're, uh, and we are so, and we're just like them, and we understand them fundamentally. And for conservatives, their rebuttal is that we're on the side of this poor, Hardworking guy out in Appalachia, who is that? You know, who no longer has a dollar anymore, as the song "As I Ain't Got a Dollar" and we're on this side, and our policies are about for this guy. It's very much about an economic nationalist message or an economic populist message that they want to convey. And so, what the base is motivated about is uh, family tax credits and, and industrial policy. And this type of warmed over social democracy that people want to imagine. And that's what uh, is conveyed is that that's what the working man imagines, and that our current base is this very poor uh, working class. is that's what our chief voters are now. Which that contrasts with the right, also saying that these people in rural areas are, uh, near near millionaires who can afford Bugattis on a plumber's salary, which there was a whole week-long debate over how plumbers can afford Bugattis, but they choose not to drive Bugattis, and um, uh, very the uh, very strange uh, take on this because. The same people who claim this also claim that these people are so poor and starving that they're ready for revolution. At the same time, they're recommending everyone drop out, not go to college and take a trade job so they can become a millionaire. And it's like, what? (laughs) Well, you got to decide whether these are poor hard scrabble people or they're uh, near millionaires who are able to afford Bugatti. So, you know, time to make it because they're very incoherent. But the opinion is is that this is the idea of who's the hardcore trump voter but in reality it's not quite the hardscrabble person living in a trailer home who's barely making ends meet now a lot of those people are voting for trump but the really hardcore trump voter and this is shown by january 6 it's somebody who owns their own business who lives in that same area but is likely to own their own business and rather successful it's somebody who lives a mile down the road and has a nice house, has you know a big ass truck and owns a boat because and liberals like to point this out in 2020 there were all these Trump boat parades to show the massive support of Trump. And then the liberals would you know make fun of it and say, oh these guys think they're working class yet they have enough discretion or they have enough disposable income to buy a boat. And you know I don't think that's a I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think it is the the hardest core Trump voter is somebody who identifies with the poor, hard scabble working class, who does imagine themselves as being oppressed by the elite, but on an economic scale, uh, they're doing quite well. They're, they do well enough to be able to afford their own boat to participate in a MAGA boat parade. And even if you looked at January 6th, you know, the majority of people who were arrested, were business owners and middle-class people. It was not unemployed working class or people who had working class jobs. That was a minority. It wasn't these people who were driven there by economic anxiety. The chief uniting principle, besides that the election was stolen, was that the Great Replacement is real and it's a big problem. Studies show this. It wasn't over uh, industrial policy. It wasn't over... Uh, gig economy exploitation, which is what Sohrab Amari and some other people tried to claim is that they were so upset about DoorDash, not drivers, not unionizing. And so there is this imagination that we represent the really low end of workers that and they we that's why we need to care about Starbucks workers unionizing and DoorDash drivers unionizing and all these things, when really a lot of those people are not our people. A lot of those people are not white (laughs) are and if you've ever been people always talk about the starbucks thing is like i know several people are like i have never seen transgender people before until i step into a starbucks so these aren't really our people uh our people are more of this guy who lives in a rural area but is very well off whether he could be one of those successful plumbers that people talk about and he has his own plumbing business and he's well off economically but culturally he does identify with, you know, the Appalachia, with the hillbillies. He, you know, he would describe himself as a hillbilly or redneck, but his income level is above that, of, well above that of what you would think is a stereotype. That's not to say that, like, the poor people in those areas aren't voting for Trump, but I think if you look at the really hardcore Trump voters at the core constituency for this, the ones who are going to rallies and stuff, they are much better off, than people imagine, and especially these people pushing the economic populism imagine, and they have very little in common with the so called multiracial working class. And the song isn't just how the offline conservatives want to imagine themselves, it's also what online conservatives want to imagine themselves as. It's like, as anyone who listens to the show knows, that a lot of people want to imagine that everyone who's on right-wing Twitter is ruralite has a uh, has never been to college it works a blue-collar job and this is what everyone should do and this is what everyone is doing the real americans if that you live anywhere in a populated center or if you have a college education you're a traitor to real america and so this song uh, further indulges that notion and that's why all these people have been uh, really uh, taking their aim at the online right and like how like we, they've taken this song which you know they're instead of like being angry at the left they're really angry at like some random anons who don't like this song because there's been several people who've just taken the opportunity to be like this shows how the these anons have no connection with real americans and they're losers and weird people and they hate normal people and martyr maid matt walsh Uh, Pedro Gonzalez a couple of other people were all making these points about the song and you know being uh that this song is what they want to believe it 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 represents and I think it's like a weird opportunity to do this is like you know there's a last week presented a lot of like uh conservative rage at anons um Some of it was stemming from the the Richard Hanania docs. And so there was a bunch of hit pieces on him. There was this compact magazine article attacking eugenicons as losers who don't understand the multiracial working class. There was all these conservatives dunking on this guy who's not a non-Josh Lakash, who I've gone on his podcast before. He's a cool guy who was making fun of this uh, extremely ugly fat woman. And then all conservatives were like, "This extremely ugly fat woman is awesome, and you guys are a bunch of weirdos and unnormal people." And then there was this woman, Megan Basham, who's like, "Steal one of these like random people I've never heard of, but is now suddenly a thing uh, on conservatism and new right, and I guess steals energy and memes from the anon sphere." And then she was attacking an anon for making an Asian joke about UPS workers. And how much money they make. And she's like, I didn't sign up for this. Count me out. And it's like, you know, this is what the internet is. And so there's a a lot of rage at the at the online right uh, from Last Weekend and Nons. And this really, which these guys are a part of the online right too. But it's more of an outrage at the dissident right. And then the song, which really has nothing to do with these battles. All these guys, because there's this... Um, solidarity around the song that you cannot criticize it. you cannot even say even if you say it's not the greatest song ever that proves you're a bug man and so people have now found this opportunity to be like oh everyone's on my side so if i dunk on anyone criticizing this i get engagement and i get empowerment and i show myself as better than these people which i i just find weird I, i really don't like the uh people like demanding you think this is the greatest song ever and some people are just like getting a little over the top in it like people are saying like ah this song gives me chills like there I've never heard such a powerful song i think it may be due to just the fact that a lot of people don't listen to much traditional country and they haven't heard something like this before and so they really into it Or it's just like the social media impact of people you know all these guys have hyped themselves up to believing that they represent the working class and the forgotten man and here comes a person uh, delivering that message and now they think that this is the anthem of the silent majority. And there has been some some of the criti- criticism of the song are a little off base even though sometimes I sympathize with some of the criticisms even if I don't share them. One that the one that's probably most off base is that everyone's worrying this guy is a secret hick lib and no, the guy is not a hick lib. He's like an Alex Jones fan. Uh, is into like a lot of the kind of conspiracy theory stuff and other things based on his likes. He's definitely not a hicklib. Like, this is a dude who probably likes Tucker Carlson, definitely likes Alex Jones, uh, definitely probably is into maybe some QAnon stuff. <laughs> so he and is likely somebody, I would bet a lot of money that he voted for Trump both times. Um, I think he was old enough to vote in 2016. That's actually the weirdest thought, is like thinking that this guy might not be old enough to vote in 2016. Once you get like a certain age... <clears throat> Once you get into your early 30s, it's hard to figure out how old people are. And then you forget, like, you know, somebody you'll think that you're around the same age with someone who's like 25. And then you're like, "Um, you know, maybe that person was barely old enough to vote in 2016. I think this guy's around my age, though, or maybe a few years younger, just a few years younger. So I don't think uh, it's totally off base. But I would I would probably bet, you know, he definitely voted for Trump in 2020. Um, So I don't think this guy is like a hick lib at all, I think. You know, you couldn't even tell from the lyrics, you know, him complaining about people on welfare and people and complaining about pedophiles. Uh, those are very now right wing signals. And the guy seems nice and genuine. And but there is a there is a chance that this is not as organic as people want to think. Is that there is a chance that this could be a creation of a conservative PR (laughs) firm? Is uh, I, I. So far, the evidence is not there that that anyone had a hand in writing the song outside of the guy, outside of Oliver Anthony. That, And by all accounts, it's just like, this guy wrote the song, he did it, he put it out there, and then just people discovered it. That, so there's no evidence so far to say this. I don't think this undermines the song's quality or whether people can enjoy it or makes it a sigh-off, but it does show... Uh, you know, it is, it, down, it definitely tarnishes some of its appeal a little bit. And it also does show that now conservatives are figuring out how to make money uh, off of the new and emerging conservative consumer demographic. And they know how to play to it in a way that uh, isn't quite as organic as they want to imagine. Because, well, what happened is, is the song took off. And then this guy, Jason Howerton, who's a longtime conservative operative because uh, a political operative, usually been doing social media stuff. He made millions helping uh, Dan Bongino's Facebook page. And he got involved in this almost immediately is that he did a whole interview with this guy explaining how, you know, he was having problems with alcohol, you know, a month ago, and then he turned to God and now he's making music. And he's creating this story and image around the guy and this mystique. And also, the guy had a message, delivered a video message about the time that it seems that Jason Howerton had gotten involved. And maybe this is done with Jason Howerton's help. Is that he did a video saying, like, I'm, you know, trying to establish that it's not he's not a Republican or a standard conservative. He doesn't really like both parties. He doesn't like how they're for uh, for the wars and they're like corrupt and they're not doing anything about human trafficking and so he did a message that is establishing him as not as a partisan but as somebody who is conservative leaning and definitely uh, has a lot of the values of the ordinary conservatives and libertarians and then like him at his concert he per you know reads from scripture and stuff and you know you have to ask it, it howerton seems to be involved with this guy i don't know if you would call him his manager but he's definitely doing pr for this guy and you you do have to wonder if like a lot of this is just him realizing that you know being advised is like here's how you create make these people even more loyal this is how you ensure you get a bigger audience and so they become more devoted to you and you have to hit these points along the way and work are to create this image around you now this is not the first time in music History that this has been done actually for a lot of popular rock bands. They created this image this brand that maybe wasn't Quite true with reality and then they did it and also there's been a lot of times where there is kind of Inorganic process or that this isn't just coming from the artists of what songs they did There's been a lot of times where record labels came down and like we want to hit track from this and it's got to have these elements within the song and you need to do this in order to ensure this song becomes a hit this has been happened time and time again so this doesn't undermine the quality of music i mean this is just a standard practice in the music industry but it does take away a little bit from maybe the appeal that this is just a country boy singing a song and then it goes mega viral without him you know you know just on its own is that there could be a chance that Maybe this is boosted initially by, you know, a conservative social media operation. Uh, I think now that doesn't mean that people don't genuinely enjoy the music and this song isn't genuinely reaching a lot of people. It is, but I think it just um, undermines some of what could have happened with the song or why the song became so popular. But by all accounts, this guy just did the song. I think he did have conservative connections beforehand. Um, you know, with the video, the channel that it initially had been published on and and maybe some conservatives were aware that this song could be coming out and maybe they're like, you know, he could have just written the song and he's like, hey, I got this song. And then these guys are like, oh, I think this could do big on conservative media. We'll help promote it, which I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But it does, uh, you know, shed some light on what the song may be like. And it does shed on, you know, say... Even though this is not, you know, we have no evidence that this was created by a social a conservative media PR firm. You almost would think it is based on the lyrics, the guy himself, over what the themes that are being hit on. It would almost be like created in the lab of what conservatives like. We want to imagine what would be a hit song for conservatives that they would really gravitate towards. And we want to do something that's different from pop country or these novelty rap songs. So we do this type of song and it's appealing to economic anxiety and showing what the forgotten working man is saying. And he's really concerned with uh, our politicians being corrupt pedophiles and and welfare queens. And this is the type of song you would create. Uh, I think you would have the only the only thing I would have said is that it was a conservative media PR firm effort is that they would have put in an abortion line in there, which there's not. Uh, so maybe this is proof that it was uh, not his own creation, because I guarantee you if like a conservative media firm was in there, they would have added something about abortion. So maybe that's like a proof that it's um, that it's not like, you know, that this is a genuine song and that maybe they initially helped promote it and that they've now like are helping, you know, burnish this guy's image to help ensure that he remains even more connected with that audience, that he that made him a hit and made him a star, so maybe that doesn't take away from the music. And I think the guy has genuine talent. You know, it's he's the one singing and playing guitar on it, so I don't think that takes away from it. But it's something that maybe if it comes out, it could be true. But we don't have any evidence that he created it. And by all accounts, he created the song on his own. But there are people, conservative media operatives, who are now working with him and ensuring that he does his best to appeal to what that demographic wants. So that's something to say. Uh the side that I actually just want to take I want to say is that I you know at this time that this became a hit on conservative twitter is like I was seeing a bunch of t- accounts talking about how all the music is miserable now and it's downbeat and what happened to all the upbeat music uh you know people talking about this were Fisher King and Lafayette Lee and they have this take that you know Nirvana invented downbeat and sad music and now that's all what's on the radio waves it's nothing like positive and upbeat and then all these people are like loving this country song that's rather dour and you know uh, uh, down it's like dour and downcast you know you could even say it's a little bit of a depressing song and but no people are like oh there's no like recognition of what they're saying no it does show that like it, that's not really the case is like most pop music is still upbeat and you know positive maybe it's much more sexual now than it was in the 80s you know the type of music you hear on the radio station you know the they would have never allowed in the 80s you know in the 80s they were complaining about Madonna and others uh, pushing the boundaries and now today you just have like full-on like no innuendo song about like blowjobs or something or even worse stuff. But, uh, you know, it still has an upbeat, you know, uh, tone and style to it. And I don't really think that the grunge thing I don't think is quite true. It's like grunge was a flash in the pan and it didn't really signal that now music is just going to be whiny and talk about how depressed they are. Because even if you look at the rock music of the later 90s, it's like this upbeat college rock stuff of like Hootie and the Blowfish and Third Eye Blind and that type of stuff. And then even if you look at the pop music, it was like boy bands. Boy bands were not like depressing at all. And, you know, Britney Spears and stuff like that. That was uh, so it didn't even really signal a break. I think a lot of people like to imagine that grunge was a more epochal moment than it was. And then if you look at back at what's traditional American folk music or what people really look to and it's like expressions of it are blues and country and blues and country have very depressing lyrics like what do you blues is not like sunshine blues is about having the blues that's why it's called the blues and no it's not um you know this is music about like heartbreak and poverty and all these terrible things if you look at listen to stuff like Hank Williams Sr and Roy Acuff like the music is really the the lyrical content is really depressing, especially Roy Acuff. I think with Hank Williams Senior, like him talking about all his problems, you're supposed to laugh at him. You know, it's like ah, you know, woman ran off again. I'm, I'm I want to kill myself. And like, oh, that's funny with Roy Acuff. That's not a laughing matter when he sings that. But so uh, that's something with that when people are like, oh, this is just a recent creation. It's like, no, look at what's traditional Americana. It's it's not light, happy, sunshine music. In some ways, I don't quite like it. The, the lyrical tone of, like, when I listen to Old Country is like, it's too almost defeatist because, uh, as a metal fan, you know, you listen to very dark music. And if you look at the lyrics, like, wow, uh, this music is uh, not uplifting. You know, it's talking about, like, uh, you know, killing yourself and stuff. But it's, like, done in a powering way, even if it's, like, you know, because the, the music is, like, very high energy and powerful. It's, like, you know, a triumphant style of music and even if you have a song it's like a very graphic depiction of like slitting your throat like they're slitting their throat or something or it's done with an empowering thing but with like country it's like you know it's really the wailing of the individual and it's very much that that person's defeated there's not that powerful sound behind it that is you know, it's more just like you're shaking, you know, you're pounding your fist at like the metal song that's like growing over some really dark content. And it's becoming a message of triumph and power. While with country, it's more you are then putting yourself in that position of of the terror of the terrible things happening to that person and the misery that they're in. And it's much more probably some way suicidal but for whatever reason the the audience is not i don't think that depressed and downcast as the music it implies but it is something that like american folk music despite the sunny optimism of american people that's always been the case especially compared with europe it's like oh americans are really confident and they really have an optimistic view of the world and and a brighter view of what the future may hold that could be changing as compared to europeans having a more tragic view of life in the world uh, but the folk music is like very different you know we don't even have the kind of triumphant patriotic folk music uh of you know the patriotic music we have like really corny stuff like god bless the usa like lean greenwood and stuff. you don't have these like kind of march songs that like everyone kind of joins in and singing in europe you know we have some like you know bonnie blue flag it's like very much older 19th century stuff it's very uh um, set in a time you know it's very almost archaic now to be singing that stuff uh, but there's a lot of examples of that kind of patriotic folk music in europe which we we don't quite have our, our folk music is entirely built around like guys fallen relationships and how they want to in their misery over over poverty and stuff. Not that that's like elements aren't in European folk music, but it is something funny that despite the American characters, that the traditional folk music we created is like this very uh, downbeat, uh, defeatist music that we have. So it's something interesting to think of. That's an aside. But moving along to the conservative Consumer demographic and whether that translates into political power because that's another thing I want to say is that a lot of times we've been seeing conservatives having this very optimistic view. It's like we are taking power, we are the majority. Look at what we've done to Bud Light. Look at how we made Sound of Freedom a a a hit. Look at now what we're doing with Oliver Anthony. Like this is showing that we have tremendous power in this country, and politics is going to eventually result in that, which is not quite the case is that it's interesting that when conservatives are now demonstrating consumer power, which, you know, as I talked about before, because before the Bud Light thing, I was like saying, you know, conservatives like talk a big game of boycotting, but they don't do shit. And generally I was reacting to the NFL. The NFL, you know, I've said this ad nauseum, but to, just to reiterate, is that, you know, conservatives did have an impact in the NFL over the anthem protests. You know, ratings went down. And then the NFL got woker in 2020 over Black Lives Matter, and you know they turned into a BLM propaganda vehicle, and all those conservatives came back, and then they began lashing out at anyone who would have reminded them of the boycott or saying they should boycott, as they wouldn't do that. And there's been other examples, too, of where they refused to show their consumer power. But now they are showing their consumer power uh, over some things, over whether what music and films they want to choose to enjoy, Over and there's even some examples of maybe some of these films, some of these woke films, getting hurt um, over over their themes. Maybe that's a that's part of the consumer consumer demographic flexing its consumer power, and it's definitely they're definitely showing their consumer power. But at the same time, they're having political defeats, and you can see this in, in a lot of first off the 2022 midterms, and then you're seeing this with. You know, even though this is outside elected officials' hands, you're seeing this with the Trump indictments. And then you're seeing this with the special elections that are happening throughout this year, which have been going very badly for Republicans. The latest example is what happened in Ohio with the, with, it wasn't explicitly an abortion referendum, but it was, a, it was a referendum on an abortion referendum that's happening in November, which the vote showed, does not show a very good sign for what conservatives were trying to accomplish there. And even with the demonstration of consumer power, there's the what's happening with Fox News is that they got rid of their most popular host, Tucker Carlson. There was a backlash, there was a decline in ratings, but the ratings are starting to build up again. And you know they made their voice heard. But in sometimes these corporations, that even the corporations that are designed to appeal to conservatives, that they'll still do woke stuff. And this is even uh, found within the the media products that the conservative audiences are going to like like Yellowstone and the Taylor Sheridan products is that these shows like conservatives absolutely love his shows, but Yellowstone has a lot of woke themes in it about race and and other matters. And the guy has always talked about how the show has a left wing theme about how we stole this land for the native Americans or whatever. And, but still conservatives watch it. And I've seen clips of them having some very woke themes about white privilege and stuff. But this is still what conservatives watch, and then uh, an example is even though al Dean, Jason Aldeen's song showed it hit number one and it showed the power of the conservative consumer demographic, CMT still removed video over raci- racism claims, and they wanted to avoid the controversy and CMT is a channel that is probably watched the vast majority of its audience is conservative. I mean, the vast majority of people who listen to country music are conservative, yet they decided to. Uh, remove it from the airwaves. And this is taking even back further. It's like Luke Combs, who is probably second to Morgan Wallen as the most popular um, country artist. There's something to say with Morgan Wallen is he also shows the power of the conservative consumer demographic and that he got canceled and then came back bigger than ever before from that, demonstrating there is this audience out there that will like people who are supposedly canceled And maybe even the backlash, a little bit of the backlash against Aldine helped him. But with Luke Combs in 2020, you know, he had to apologize for flying the Confederate flag at shows and stuff. And he was like, I'm not going to do that anymore. And that's due to the pressure that some of these guys have to handle with left wing stuff. And then there's what's going on with NASCAR, which NASCAR, (coughs) vast majority of its audience is conservative. Yet they continue to try to be woke. You know, they celebrate Pride Month now. They banned Confederate flags. They banned them you know, back in 2020. And now there's all the stuff that they've been doing around Bubba Wallace. And now there's a race car driver who got you know, indefinitely suspended over over liking a George Floyd meme. So there's still this political correctness even around the stuff that they want to enjoy, even though that this consumer demographic is uh, uh, articulating its power more than ever before. So there is that weird dynamic that, you know, they can help make Jason Aldean's song number one, but it won't be played on CMT over racism accusations. And probably even a few country radio stations were worried about playing it due to, you know, fears of being called racist. So it's a weird dynamic playing with there. But going to the political matters is that, you know, the conservatives at the same time that they're wielding more influence over the market and there's now... They're sending a clear message to the entertainment industry that, and even corporations in general, is that you have to keep us in mind when you're doing things that are we perceive as too woke, or that we want products that cater to our interests and our beliefs. And at the same time, they're doing this, they're not they're not doing well politically. And so now I'll bring up the vote that happened in Ohio last week. Is that Ohio had a referendum on whether they needed a 60% majority to pass an amendment to the state constitution. And it's about because they have a referendum in November on having a constitutional amendment to keep abortion legal. Is that they can't ban abortion. I I think it's there is some legal or there is some leeway. It's like when a fetus is vital or stuff. So they could like limit it to a certain amount of weeks, but they cannot ban it. They cannot, and it's not likely that they could do, uh, maybe they could do a heartbeat bill, but I don't think they can do a heartbeat bill because otherwise conservatives would be probably not as aggravated by the, by the amendment. But it definitely limits what they can do. And it's definitely a referendum on whether Ohioans want to keep abortion legal. And, cons- you know, Republicans in the state realize like, well, hey, uh what if we create make the threshold 60%? This would make it you know much better for us to do what we want and say that you know you it'd be much harder for them to get that 60% threshold Well that bill uh, the, the vote the referendum on to change the constitution or the threshold uh, went down in feet. Nearly, you know, people voted nearly 60 percent no. I think the final vote was 57 percent or 58 percent voting no to not change it. And that was essentially 57 or 58 percent people saying we want to keep abortion legal in Ohio. And this was a huge defeat for pro-lifers is that they have continued to lose on these referendums and red states, you know, Kentucky, Kansas, I think it was Montana, and now Ohio. You know, Ohio is maybe a little bit more of a battleground state, but Kentucky, Kansas are not battleground states. I mean, there's more of a chance of a Democrat winning, but they're pretty solidly red. You know, they're pretty solidly red states. These are not uh, you know, this isn't, you know, this is not Pennsylvania, this is not Nevada. These are states that, in a presidential election, Republicans can pretty much guarantee that they're going to win. And yet, their referendums on abortion continue to lose. Michigan, which is a battleground state, legal uh, passed a uh, constitutional amendment to legalize it, overwhelmingly so, last year. So, you know, it continues to lose even in red states. You know, Montana, Kansas, Kentucky, now Ohio. And it looks like in November... Even though some people are trying to cope, they're like, well, we could still win in November. It's probably, you know, maybe they could get it by a smaller margin. Maybe it's under 55%. But there's a chance that even if they had had the 60% threshold... That the other side could still can still reach that sixty percent threshold, which would be a massive defeat for pro-lifers, and this does show it's like you know they've time and time again said that the real reason for the 2022 midterms was entirely Trump. Like abortion played no role with it, and it's actually a really popular issue, and that all these voters are for it, and they're and they keep hyping themselves up that this is an incredibly popular issue. But at the same time, they're now admitting that actually we need to keep abortion off the ballot and we just need to, uh, you know, not have voters decide on it. It's like, well, if this is a highly popular issue that you're supposed to win on and it's all Trump's fault. Why aren't you running on it? Why are you not wanting to put it to the voters? It's because they continue to lose on this issue. And, you know, I've been hearing, you know, the Pro life it's kind of a typical thing of conservatives. They've hyped themselves up for years and years and years saying that the vast majority of Americans are on their side. It's very much similar to what we're seeing now with the right, is like, you know, no matter what is is that they're about, is like the, you know, silent majority is rejecting Bud Light, the silent majority cares a lot about Target, the silent majority is seeing Sound of Freedom, which is an idea that a, you know, a very partisan minority represents the majority, which is not the case, which is what we're seeing in these elections. And no out of hype or cope is going to change that. And I'll bring in one of the elite questions now. I'll I'll return to them, uh, the rest of them in a moment because I've got more to say. But as a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the ConverElite option at Highly Respected Subsection, and that's at Highly Respected dot.substack.com and make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. This question comes from a good friend, New England refugee. He's like, after this Ohio referendum, I think it's very clear that abortion is killing Republicans at the polls. I know we can't go up the issue and betray our own voters, but something has to be done. What is the messaging Republicans should take on this issue? Well, the the thing is, is just you have to just keep it with the states. Is and one problem I see is now pro-lifers. Are taking the absolute worst message from this, and they're like, actually, we need to run on a federal, on a federal uh, 15-week ban, and it's like, absolutely not. That makes it even more unpopular. If it, if you're getting your ass handed to you on these state referendums, the answer to your political, your electoral woes is not to go to a federal ban that is going to make this a president, uh, an election, an uh, issue for the. entire... In- every race in 2024 and become an issue in the 2024 presidential election where there's already struggles here. You're adding an additional problem. And it's also never going to pass Congress either. That that a ban is never going to pass Congress because, one, Democrats see that this is a winning issue for them, that they actually pay a penalty for going along with Republicans. And moderate Republicans don't want to go along with this because they're seeing what's happening on the state side. So it's never even going to happen It's just a way to, you know, put it's a true electoral anchor to make it even worse. But the only thing you can do with this is just leave it as a state's issue to take it out of the national political conversation. And you have deep red states that pass, you know, restrictions on abortion and maybe they keep it off ballots. It's probably smarter politically for Republicans to keep this off ballots because, you know, Democrats, if you put it to a ballot, Democrats are able to turn out a lot of their voters to come or people who would otherwise not vote to vote on this issue. So the real thing is just to keep it with the state legislatures. Don't have referendums on it because they continue to lose referendums. I think in... I don't know if it was in case in Kansas or Kentucky, but I know in Kansas, the referendum there was done by Republicans. And it got defeated soundly and then they just said like oh well it was poorly worded and voters didn't get it it's like well you're the one you're the idiots who worded this and put it to a ballot and i remember when kansas first happened that they're like oh this is a fluke this isn't representative and then we've seen time and time and time and time again and it'll happen every time they could do this like they could put abortion to a referendum in a state like tennessee and i still think a majority there would vote to legal- keep abortion legal And if that happened, that would just be uh, incredibly devastating to the pro-lifers. So the real thing is to try to not make it an issue at the ballot box and to just let state legislatures go with it. I think the worst possible idea is to try to make it a federal issue and a national ban, which could only come from the idiots of Conservative Inc., who really have no conception of what the American electorate is about have been wrong about everything, about wrong about every election. They're once again wrong about what's happening in the primaries. They still insist that every poll is fake and DeSantis is going to win in a landslide. Same people who argued that every poll is fake in 2016 and Marco Rubio was going to win in a landslide are now back to say that uh, DeSantis is going to win in a landslide and every poll is fake and... Except for the one poll that showed Biden soundly be- defeating Trump, for some reason that was the one poll that was not fake. Uh, every other poll is fake, though. And so this is the type of because there's no penalty for this. If you say what that the conservative institutions want you to say, and they want to believe that abortion is a popular issue, and they want to believe that it's a politically, po- it's going to help them politically to have a federal ban, and they want to believe that DeSantis is going to be the winner of this election. And if you indulge in these fantasies, you're rewarded. But if you counter these fantasies, you're attacked and smeared and, you know, shutting aside and, you know, they it, it generates a lot of outrage on on these people. So in order to, you just have to follow the herd and follow the crowd. And then these people come back as like, I'm a respected political analyst that's been wrong about literally every fucking thing in my life. But for some reason, people still turn to these idiots. Uh, so once again, this, these, uh, this stupidity can only be believed by people within conservative. Inc. Unfortunately, those are our analysts and commentators and thinkers, and they're incentivized to be stupid and idiotic because they really just need to be about pleasing the, you know, the core audience and the core institutions rather than telling the truth and being honest about what's happening. But I don't. I'm not obligated to do that. And so that goes on. And with my final point before I go to the lead questions is that. <laughs> one thing is that a new poll came out and once again not all polls are fake that showed that ordinary republican voters care and this goes to the conservative consumer demographic issue too so this is you know wanting to tie this all in is that showing that ordinary republican voters care more about law and order than they do about wokeness and republican voters aren't really into economic populism either so this this new poll that new york times released is really undermining what the Right wing punditry has been telling people, which is primarily associating, which is primarily obsessed with the superficial aspects of wokeness. And then the intellectuals are like, oh, they want more populist economics when in fact they prefer the kind of standard Republican economics that have always been the case. And but they and they really care more about restoring order to this country than they do about Bud Light. And you may say it's like law and order can be a wokeness. Like I was talking to a friend about this and he was insisting that the crime issue is actually a matter of wokeness and so is immigration and stuff. And you could maybe say that because once again, wokeness is not quite well defined, or at least it is for conservatives. It's a sense that it's like political correctness. Now we can offer a more standard definition of what wokeness is, which is how the left is, is that America is built on fundamental Discrimination and systemic racism and these these structural inequalities are baked into the cake. And what we need to do is to have dramatic reforms in order to change America. And so that would be something uh, of a good definition of wokeness. But for conservatives, it's just a vague sense of you know political correctness run amok. And they'll say something like, you know, all these gay stuff that's being pushed onto them. And if you had to ask, like, what are the chief elements of wokeness? And they'd probably say the Bud Light, uh, Dylan Mulvaney stuff, and Drag Queen Story Hour. Now, does this stuff, and maybe even they may say uh, trans athletes and girls sports. Now, does this stuff translate well at the ballot box? and outside of this poll before i get into its findings it's been found to be no now does it hurt republicans at the ballot box that's that remains to be a question but it doesn't really help them because the biggest example is that republicans ran heavily on in terms of an electoral issue that illustrated their concern for wokeness and wanting to beat back against wokeness was bans on trans athletes and girls sports now polling on it shows you know a relative majority of americans support this but does do they really care about this issue? No. So it's not really motivating them to vote. It's something that's different. It's something that's like abortion in the years prior to Roe v. Wade being overturned. Is that you would see a majority of Americans say they want to keep abortion legal, but it didn't really translate much of the ballot box because people felt like, oh, it's a distant issue. I don't really have to worry about it. it. Doesn't affect me. But this is my opinion on it. Now that it's a direct issue and it they feel like it affects them. We're now seeing that uh, pro-choice <clears throat> leanings of a lot of Americans come to the fore. All right, pro-choice, pro-abortion. We're not going to use pro-choice. We're going to use pro-abortion. Pro-life, pro-abortion. Those are the examples. <laughs> That's what we're going to use. Our anti-life. But yeah, the pro-abortion side leanings of what it is or wanting to keep it legal. Now, when it comes to trans athletes and girls sports, you'll see people are like, I don't think that should happen, but... You know, I care about the economy. I care about crime. I care about immigration. I care about things that directly affect me. This doesn't really directly affect me unless I have a daughter in high school sports. But, you know, it's not one of their major concerns. Well, in Michigan, they ran heavily on this issue. This is one of their big things. They ran ads about it. And and so did a lot of other Republicans. And they got their ass kicked in Michigan. It wasn't so much voters rejecting it. It was just saying voters didn't really care about it. And I think that's a thing that's happening with wokeness is that it's, I don't know if it's alienating people by the issue. It's just showing that voters, that's not really what they care deeply about. And maybe it shows that Republicans are focused on frivolity rather than direct issues that directly affect them. So here's what the poll finding shows. And this is really much like a Trump versus DeSantis because Trump is... You know what he's saying? Like, I don't like the term woke. What does it even mean? Which, it's true, they do have a tough time defining it. And Trump is focusing more on law and order. It's like he's like the crime in the streets, the border is open. They're bringing in so many immigrants. And while DeSantis is just like, you know, in Florida, we're not allowing ESG. You gotta look at what I'm doing in Florida. We don't, we, the woke mind virus is no longer there in Florida. And so that's and he's saying woke all the time. It points out that he said woke (laughs) the word woke like 19 times in a five, (laughs) just like a one in one minute or so in one of his speeches. And there was another time somebody highlighted a clip. It was like a two minute clip, and he said like woke like 20 times. And he says woke woke woke. And it's not his declining poll numbers show that it's not happening. But here this poll asks, it's like. When presented with the choice between two hypothetical Republican candidates, and this is the New York Times poll, only 24% of national Republican voters opted for a candidate who focuses on defeating radical woke ideology in our schools, media, and culture over a candidate who focuses on restoring law and order in our streets and at the border. Around 65% said they would choose the law and order candidate. Among those 65 and older, often the most likely age bracket to vote, only 17% sign on to the anti-woke crusade those numbers were nearly identical in Iowa. And so this is this does show and like they interviewed a lot of people and they really are taking Greerhead head takes on this or what I think that this is about. It's they interviewed one old lady who's well not middle-aged, she's 55. We'll we'll call her middle-aged. And she said if you don't like Bud Light, what Bud Light did, don't buy it. And she added referring to the brand, if you don't like what Disney is doing, don't go that's not the government's responsibility and so it's this very much live and let live attitude among conservatives now sometimes this is bad but it's also what they generally believe and it's becoming more common among conservatives with you know a majority of them still supporting gay marriage even though there's now an increase relative increase from the last five years of conservatives saying you know there's something morally wrong with homosexuality still a slim majority believe uh gay marriage should be legal uh, based on the latest polling but they have a lot of other things um you know and they really don't believe it's the government's job about this there's another one they interviewed an 82 year old woman and she said if anyone actually believes in woke ideology they are not in tune with the rest of society not really true and she adds, and parents will step in and deal with that, which they are with these schools, but they really think it's not, they really care more about direct issues and stuff. And the direct issues are really the identity issues. Now, wh- where where do they draw the line at wokeness? And I think for the average conservative viewer, person or Republican voter, they view wokeness as what conservative me is talking about. And it's Drag Queen, Story Hour, the transgender stuff, Dylan Mulvaney, it's not quite the racial hiring practices or the racism that they're seeing in schools. Now the education stuff works. Now the gender ideology and critical race theory is an election winner, but you it's about tailoring it the showing that there are indoctrinating kids with it. Education is the one example where if they can prove that these schools are doing like changing standards to become like make their kids dumber or, you know, make them less prepared for life. Or that they're, you know, not allowing their kid to go to the best school because they have a racial quota now. That stuff really agitates people. Because we saw that that win in Virginia in 2021 that, you know, Glenn Youngkin ran heavily on that issue and is mostly critical race theory stuff, more the identity stuff than the gender ideology stuff. But that came into play too. And they won. Now when they expanded to stuff that's outside of schools or outside of things that people have to directly deal with because you know, drag queen story hour, unless it's in schools, most people will be like, that's hor- That's really bad. I don't like it. But, you know, I- I'm more worried about other issues because once again, that's more libtard parents taking their kids there on their own volunteer basis rather than the schools mandating that they ha- go to a drag queen story. hour. Of course, there are some ex- there are a few examples of schools mandating that. But the general thrust is what they're teaching in kids' schools. And they're teaching anti-white racism. And they're teaching kids to change their gender at six years old. That's when it becomes a political hot topic and becomes an issue. And that's when wokeness is uh, becomes a issue that ties in with identity issues and becomes an electoral winner. It's when it's expanded beyond that to the type of superficial stuff that conservatives fixate on that it becomes a, not so much a winner. Because two years ago, what wokeness was was about those issues. Now it's just like advertising done by these major corporations or, you know, you're going full Bud Light. You know, Dylan Mulvaney's face on a Bud Light can is not going to work, but they feel like you know Ron DeSantis is wanting to sue Bud Light over this because he feels that that's what the voter base wants. But that's only what the consumer consumer demographic wants, which... That's a minority even within Republican voters. They're, they do have a, a lot of influence, but not every Republican voter is totally apart that. You know, they may agree with a lot what the conservative consumer demographic cares about and what they're, you know, what they're watching and reading and learning and what they're advocating for. But what they really care about is something different because that, that, they're not fully within the uh, cultural milieu of the conservative consumer demographic. But it's about appealing to them because they know that that demographic gets you engagement, gets you a lot of attention, you know, drives traffic to these websites. But it's not doesn't quite translate into votes. And DeSantis is learning that the hard way. And this goes back to the point I was making about, you know, the conservative consumer demographic that has it's demonstrating a lot of market power or or a degree of market power. But it doesn't have that's not translating into political power because, you know, what they care about isn't what the majority of voters care about. And it's not representative of the majority of voters. It's not even representative of the majority of Republican voters, even though there is some commonalities between the majority of Republican voters and this demographic. And so it's not it's market power, but not political power. And whether that's preferable over political power is a, is a matter of debate. I would probably say you'd probably You'd want both, and but if you can only have market power in the way that they design niche products for you, and that companies have to avoid the excesses of wokeness or excesses that would agitate that consumer consumer that CCD, you would have, and at the same time you're losing elections by a lot, and the issues you care about are getting destroyed at the ballot. Maybe that's not quite the best scenario you want. And this even goes with some of the economic issues. The poll found that, and the way it's worded, you would think that a majority of Republican voters would support this, but they only found that uh, about 38% of Republican voters said they would back a candidate who promised to fight corporations that promote woke left ideology versus the 52% who preferred a candidate who says that a government should stay out of deciding what gov- corporations should support. I don't think that that's a pretty cringe position, I would admit. But... It does indicate the type of libertarian views on a lot of the base and what they think. And that's like even by tax policies and business policies is that a lot of Republican voters don't really care about trade policies. They don't really care about they certainly don't support wealth redistribution, at least not the type of wealth redistribution envisioned by a lot of these post liberals. Uh, They do like, they do want to keep entitlements protected because a lot of these are older people and they know that those benefit them. But outside of that, you know, they're not that, you know, they're not that economically populist. A lot of them are, it's like they, a lot of the core constituency of Republican voters are these middle-class business guys who, you know, a lot of them run their own business or a lot of times as a small business owner and they hate taxes and regulation. They don't want more of it. And they also really hate unions because <laughs> that impacts their business. And, you know, to see like some of the right embrace a lot of the economic populism, imagining that the work, the multiracial working class is their as their base, when in fact, it's people who are building up themselves and, you know, entrepreneurs and those types who and salesmen who are the most fanatically Republican, most fanatically devoted to Trump and a lot of these right wing causes. And you're basically advocating for all these economic policies that <laughs> screw them over, royally screw them over, and it's not what they really want. And you're not really winning over that multiracial working class because you're not going to win over Starbucks baristas with uh, you know, economic populism because they're, they would rather vote for Democrats because they view Republicans as evil white supremacists. And even like a lot of the Hispanics who are starting to turn to Republicans – Aren't these like union workers? Are these guys working at the low ends of the economy? They are, they are people who are following a lot of these uh, ruralites, white ruralites, who are trying to make you know the best ends. You know they're skilled laborers and they're trying to open up their own businesses or they're freelance workers, and they once again don't like these left wing policies. They mainly just don't like the lefts being so pro-black and like being pro-crime and they turn to republicans because they're like the democrats are promising blacks all these benefits and nothing for us and wanting to redistribute our wealth to blacks and also they're not doing anything about crime and they're allowing these new immigrants to come in here and impact our businesses and take our jobs and so we don't like that so we are going to support Republicans. So the reason why they're turning to Republicans, uh, more Hispanics are, is more identity issues than economic populism. And really the poll shows rather than law and order, it's better to see this as identity issues triumph. Moreover, the new type of social conservatives are, are the superficial aspect of wokeness, which is what conservative media fixates on, what that the conservative consumer demographic has a lot of interest in, But at the polls, they still care far more about the identity issues, whether, you know, law and order, you know, strong immigration policy, probably even affirmative action and that stuff. Because I don't you know, that could be tied with wokeness as well. But that directly impacts people because, you know, whether you get into college or whether you get a job depends on affirmative action and this anti-white discrimination. And so they really that impacts them directly. And so the and. You know, they're not anti-economic populism either. And that's been shown in all their polls as well. And the real direction that conservatives need to follow in is not quite what the conservative consumer demographic wants to hear, but it's what ordinary voters care about. I don't think it it's not it's hostile to the conservative consumer demographic, but you shouldn't confuse the CCD with the silent majority or the majority of Americans. You, it's a... It's a minority that is demonstrating a lot of market power, but it does not have the political power that it imagines it has. And the song, the Oliver Anthony song, I think is just a song. You know, it's not representative of a rising majority of Americans who are upset about Epstein Island and stuff. It's just a song. You know, I think it's a pretty good song. It's an all right song. And I'll think a lot of people just like it for a song. I don't think it's uh, indicative of anything deeper than that, besides that it does show the market power of the CCD. But in terms of what politics should be, this is not a surprising lesson, but if you look at polling, if you look at what's happening in those elections, what conservatives need to focus on, what Republicans need to focus on is the identity issues, it's crime, it's immigration, it's even the economy and stuff, it's what directly impacts people not focusing on superficial aspects of wokeness, which is what a lot of conservative commentary wants to focus on because they're making a lot of money off it. And it's a lot what their core audience wants to hear rather than what's the truth and what's actually facing the country and what actually the majority of Republican voters want. And so that is my tie-in of all that discussion. That was an hour and 20-minute discussion. We're going to have – I'm going to have a – I'm gonna have an article later this week explaining uh, going expanding on one of the concepts we discussed in this podcast. So uh, be on the lookout for that. So now for the rest of the convalete questions, and I'm gonna give my reminder once again. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the highly res- or if you sign up for the convalete option at highly respected Substack, and that's at highly and of course. Make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements if you you already haven't. People are loving them. People really liked the uh, one on Richard Hanani last week. So the first question of the other ones that we're uh, handling comes from Jack. Jack asks, Hi, Scott. Recently there have been videos going around of people, presumably liberals, complaining about the effects of crime and immigration on their communities. Some on the online right have ridiculed these people as getting what they voted for while others push back on on that mentality and say that we can reach these people. What do you think the best response is, and do you think we reach these people? I would like to think that some could be won over, but election after election shows they don't change how they vote, so I'm not really hopeful. I think, you know, it's a uh, little—it's tempting to say they're getting what they vote for, but I think it's just better to show, like, this is what life is in, like, an urban America. This is what modern America is in these insane stories. Now, for the worst, liberals are just saying, like, they need more mental health— counseling or whatever if they're saying if they're recommending something stupid like that or this is caused by racism then yeah they deserve more mockery but if they're just complaining if they're just like a, a city resident who's complaining about crime and they're like talking about their life i think the better response is just highlighting that this is like life in urban america now and this is what liberal policies will lead to and if you're hearing this insane story this is what's going to happen to you now There have been instances of people, these voters changing their minds in San Francisco, for instance, is that they did recall their progressive D.A. who was pushing these policies. And they also voted to remove these really woke administrators of their schools. And so that but at the same time, the city is still allowing like mass scale looting. Um, And there's been a few other times, too. But I mean, it's it's also tough. And you, some people pointed out the Eric Adams election, too, as like pushback against this. But Eric Adams has been really doing that. And that's just like the nature of urban politics. Um, sometimes these people do change and they do want lower crime. But due to the nature of how cities are operated, that they get out vote. They get outmaneuvered by the political power of the black community or whatever other community is promoting these crime poli- or li- soft on crime policies. So I think the best reaction, I think a little people get a little too gleeful about this. Sometimes if it's a really bad example of just like this person had a tweet blaming white people for all crime or just saying blacks don't commit crime and this is all about how we need better schooling or something. If they're doing something stupid like that, then yeah. But if it's just a random city resident and they've decided to, maybe they have some like left-wing vibe or something. I think the best response is just to show this is how... America is descending into anarchy. This is why we need tough-on-crime policies. This is why we need to restore law and order. And I think it's just not so much about reaching these people or whatever. I think it's just about highlighting the plight of these people to further along this message that left-wing policies lead to chaos and right-wing, we need tough-on-crime policies. We need, we need to restore order. We need to fight back against chaos And that's what we need to that's the proper response to these things is just to focus on the bigger picture of just highlighting about how life is in modern modern urban America now. So that would be my opinion on it. Um, I I understand why people would take glee in it, but I think sometimes they go over the top and like you voted for this. And the only solution is to move to the middle of nowhere, which a lot of people are saying this also live in cities, too. So they're not actually um, following their own advice. The next question comes from mystery. He's asking for a book recommendation. It's like, hey, Scott, any book recommendations that deal with FDR from a right-wing perspective? There isn't a, quite a good one because uh, there's been a bunch of libertarian works and like standard conservative ink works about this, but they come from a very s- stereotypical conservative ink perspective, and they'll be like, oh, he's racist because he's Japanese internment, and all this stuff, and he worked with segregationists. Uh, so I don't know. On the whole aspect of FDR, there's not a, quite a good one. There's one that I think a lot of people from a right-wing perspective would enjoy. I don't think this author is right-wing at all, but a lot of right-wingers, Thomas 77 really likes this guy, is Thomas Fleming. Different from the Tom Fleming that was involved with Chronicles, but this guy was like a popular historian, and he wrote uh, The New Dealers' War, which is about everything FDR was doing in the lead-up to The New Deal, and our doing in the lead up to World War II and how, you know, he was censoring a lot of Americans and targeting Americans who are critical of the war. I would say that doesn't really deal entirely with the New Deal and a lot of the FDR phenomenon, but it deal, deals well with one aspect about that, and that was the warmongering. And so that's uh, that would be one recommendation. I'll have to get back to you. I, I need to investigate this topic I don't think that there would be a good one from a right-wing perspective, but there could be just a mainstream academic history that ex- explores what uh, FDR was like. Another book that's like pretty decent. I did an IQ supplement on this. Is Fear Itself, uh, which is by Katz Nelson. I f- I forget the whole guy's um, last name, but I did an IQ supplement on it like two years ago, so a while ago, and it explored how. FDR was dependent on a lot of these Southern segregationists and how a lot of his policies were influenced by Mussolini and others. It's more of a left wing critique of it, but it does show like what the New Deal was like and what some of the influences are. I don't think it creates as positive of an opinion of the New Deal, but it does have aspects about it, about how the type of identity politics that we have was initiated by FDR's brand of New Deal and his brand of politics. And it indicates that. And so that's a, that's a pretty decent book on it. But I'll get back to you on some other recommendations. But those are the two I'd have now. Neither of them, Fear Itself is from a left-wing perspective, but it's still an interesting look at FDR and the New Deal. And, and it's by Nelson is the last name. Ira Ketz Nelson is his name, and then The New Dealers' War by Thomas Fleming. So, those are the two I would recommend. And one more book recommendation doesn't it's more positive about the New Deal, but I think it reveals a lot of the aspects about it is is Freedom from Fear by David Kennedy, which is part of the Oxford history. Very good book. It deals with a lot of other topics, but it also shows the New Deal. I guess the other thing to show is like the communists. The communism element within the New Deal and how many of these people were working were associated with communists, which there is a fourth book about it that's actually very critical of McCarthyism. But before we get to McCarthy, it's like sounding like McCarthy and what the role of communists and communist sympathizers are in the FDR coalition. And that's Red's uh, McCarthyism in the 20th Century by Ted Morgan. Pretty good. Very good book up and in. Generally, sounds like it's almost from a right-wing perspective up until uh, after World War II. So that actually illustrates that. And also Stalin's War by Sean McMeekin also shows off a lot of the communist influence on the FDR administration and the New Deal, uh, particularly when it came to foreign policy and their Soviet bias. So those are... um, That's a lot of books. That's like five book recommendations. So hopefully you jotted them all down. So last but not least, we got a question from John. He asks, hi Scott, my question pertains to the coverage of Sam Bakeman Freed. He is back in the news again for witness tampering. It seems that SBF is not getting the amount of coverage that you would expect for such a high-profile financial crime. It feels like Bernie Madoff was a much bigger deal for the news media. Why do you think this is? I think that there's just there's a lot of attention to SBF and there's a lot of anger over him. Uh, You know, the media really does not like SBF. You know, despite his numerous connections and stuff, he's a really unlikable person. And even when people see with him, they're like, "We don't like this guy. This guy's definitely uh, shady and sketchy. Uh, This guy is definitely guilty of something." But the reason why there's not as much attention to him is because Bernie Madoff happened in a time where there was not much news versus SBF, which we have, you know, a deluge of news. I mean, you know, there's the Trump indictments. There's the primary. There's Joe Biden's issues. There's the Ukraine war. Uh, even just last week, there's the wildfires in Maui. There's just so much news happening now. Versus, and this has been the case with all like SBF. It's like, we are having all the Trump stuff. We're having a border invasion. There, even though the news media doesn't want to focus on that. There's probably just a lot more happening now than when we had with Bernie Madoff was in the news. Madoff was also seen as representative of what was happening with the Great Recession because he was arrested in late 20, 2008 and they needed a, a symbol of the recession and the, all the crimes and corruption of the financial class. And who better to serve that as Bernie Madoff, which there's not as much of this popular uproar over the economy and Wall Street as there were, was at that time. So there was less news. Um, his story highlighted the biggest news story at that time, which was the Great Recession. Um, the only other bigger story would have been the election of Barack Obama, but you know that had happened a month before his arrest, and people had moved on. And now the recession was still going on, and there was a lot of economic troubles. And what better symbol and representative of that of? what the financial class was doing wrong that Bernie Madoff. Well, here with SBF, he's seen as an outlier uh, or somebody who is, you know, there's not as much of a big economic concern or scandal that can be tied with it. It's just SBF on the loan. It's just like this one person doing financial impropriety and doing bad things. While Murray, Bernie Madoff was representative of the entire industry and the entire economy that was happening at that time. So there's definitely a lot more t- attention paid to them for those reasons alone. One, uh, less news then. <laughs> Far more news that outweighs it. There. you know, The news media just has too much to cover right now. And they'd rather cover Trump than they would with SBF. And I think for most Americans, they care a lot more about Trump than they do with SBF and what's happening with him and with Biden. And... Madoff tied in his scandal tied in with the biggest news story of that time, which SBF's does not. So though that's why the difference in in attention paid between the two. So that is it for today's podcast. I hopefully you enjoyed it. We're gonna, as I said, we're gonna have a article about some of the things I talked about in the main topic today and expand on that. So be on the lookout for that. And of course, we're gonna have an incredible. IQ supplement later this week. So, also be on the lookout for that. So, until next time, stay respected.